Hello and welcome to the third episode of History Remastered. Today I'm going to be talking about mystics, well female medieval mystics and why they're cool I guess trying to make the case. A lot of people think that mystics are witches or they're people who were insane or it's about magic but actually medieval mysticism isn't about any of those things. And although you don't see a lot about medieval mysticism in public history, I think that's something that needs to change. Okay, so if medieval mysticism isn't about witches and magic, then you might be thinking, what is it? And basically, medieval mysticism is about having a direct consciousness of God. And that sounds really confusing, but basically what it is, is when an individual has contact with God. So it might be a vision, it might be that they hear God's voice, it might be that they learn some information from God, which God wants them to kind of spread around on earth. And that's a very broad definition. But medieval mysticism is quite varied. So, you know, it needs its own broad definition, I guess. And so I thought that today I'd start off by going through a couple of examples of some maybe interesting cases of female medieval mystics, and then bring it back to the present day at the end, why it's really relevant that we know about this history why it needs more representation in the public history domain. Okay, so let's start with the example of, she's called Ida of Levain, and she was around in the mid-13th century. And the information that I'm about to give you on Ida of Levain comes from Nancy Cacciola's translation of a life which was written about Ida. So, Ida of Louvain, she was a daughter of a wine merchant. She refused to marry and instead she'd become a recluse. So she lived in a small cell within her parents' home. And then one day, it seemed like she went mad. She took off her simple clothes and this is a quote from the source. She wrapped herself in a dirty rag and draped a mat over her shoulders for warmth. She then started going outside of her parents' house into plazas and and marketplaces and she was strutting about and all these people were staring at her thinking you know she's insane this woman's gone mad and eventually she whipped herself up into such a frenzy she was you know shouting running around that these townspeople actually tied her up to prevent her harming herself or other people and in the text which was written about Ida of Louvain we get an explanation for this just before that happened, she'd had a vision from God where a pauper had appeared to her and in the vision, he'd reached towards the skin on her chest and pulled it apart to reveal her heart and this pauper had then climbed inside of her heart in the vision and this pauper enjoyed living in her hospitality is I think what it says in the source. And this pauper was in the vision, Jesus Christ, and so the vision is all about welcoming Jesus Christ into your heart and because he is a pauper in the vision about the importance of poverty for Christians as well. 
And according to this text, which her confessor had written, she realised the importance of poverty from this vision. And that's why she stripped herself of her clothes, paraded herself around the towns, trying to promote the ideal of poverty. But the reaction that she had, as I've just said, was that people were sure that she'd gone insane and tied her up because of it. They thought that she was essentially possessed by the devil. And it's true that at the time, in the medieval period, often you see people trying to assess if someone has been possessed by the devil. It's not necessarily that they don't believe that she could have been contacted by God. It's not that people don't believe that mystics exist. It's that they think that these women have been possessed by the devil. And they try and determine that, judging by their physical characteristics. There is some really, really interesting stuff, which actually Nancy Cacciola, who translated that text, has also written about talking about things like how, for example, there's this idea that a person's soul lives in their heart and that God lives within the soul and in the heart. And if you get possessed by a demon or an unclean spirit, they live in your gut and in your intestines and they can still control that individual's behaviour and free will from the gut, but they haven't necessarily penetrated the heart. But just to return to Ida of Louvain, I think it's a good example because it kind of typifies what a lot of people would expect medieval mysticism to be, that it would be someone who's acting in an insane way, if you want to call it that. But what is crucial is that when people are interacting with people who are claiming to have visions or have spoken to God, the debate isn't about whether it's possible for God to be contacting with medieval mystics, which is what we might expect actually it's about whether this knowledge or this vision is coming from God or from the devil. And that's a really key framework to recognise when we're talking about medieval mysticism. But now talking about that physiology that I was mentioning with demons possessing people, physiology features heavily in other aspects of medieval mysticism. You have medieval mystics interacting with that theme of the body. So some kind of shorter examples of this are things like Catherine of Siena, she was a mystic, who had a vision where she went and drank from the wound in Christ's side, from where he'd been crucified. She goes and drinks out of that. And that's not that unusual. You have people like Margaret of Cortona, who also have the same vision, where they're drinking from Christ's side. I think Angela of Foligno has the same thing. And in those visions, obviously the body is incredibly central, both the body of the mystic and Christ's body. It's what's called in scholarship this this Christological strand in medieval mysticism. Another example is Teresa of Avila. She's actually late medieval period, to be honest. She says, and I quote, Let him kiss me with the kiss of his mouth. From without you, what am I, Lord? Now I see, my bridegroom, that you are mine. So she's talking about God there as her bridegroom, that's another theme in mysticism, where a lot of these women want to become the bride of Christ. They want to marry God, to become so close with him, so connected with him. And that's the case here. She's talking about kissing God. And so that's just another example of this Christological theme in medieval mysticism, where you've got the focus on the body of the mystic and on God's body to become close and to feel that connection. So those examples, they might have seemed a bit random, and they probably are, but I just think they're really interesting ones, and there's a lot to unpack. There's other interesting themes in mysticism, where, like I was saying, women want to be the bride of God. We've got other examples where mystics inflict physical suffering on themselves in order to love God, and there's a lot of theory around that, but it's basically because 
they're imitating how Jesus felt when he was dying on the cross. You've got themes where mystics act out the visions that they're having. Someone like Giovanna of Orvieto, who is reported to actually float in the air when she's having visions of God raising her up. So we're just going to move on now to why that history is so relevant today. I think the main reason is that these women need recognition. During this period, claiming authority in religion comes from three places. So you've got reading the Bible and reading theological scripture. So this is by and large limited to men who are educated and can read and can understand it. So they might have gone to university or read these scriptures in a monastery. And men who can do this, they have some authority in speaking about religion because they know what they're talking about. They've read the Bible. You also get authority in terms of religion in the medieval period within the institution of the church. Again, this is limited to men. Women don't hold official positions in the church during the medieval period. These are positions like being a priest or a bishop or a cardinal. And at this time, if you're in the church, these men, they dictate what people are taught in a church service, for example. The Pope is who shares the messages from God to the people on earth. So the church holds a power. They hold an authority in speaking on religious aspects during the medieval period. And finally, you get authority coming from Christ himself. There is a sense of authority in saying that you've spoken to Christ, that you know exactly what Christ said. And this is also where medieval mystics claim their authority in the medieval period. These were women who claimed to have heard from God directly, and that he had given them a message or a vision. And this is threatening to the men of the medieval church, because... For them, this is someone who's making often a competing claim to know what God wants everyone to do. And not only that, but in a world of patriarchy, where women are thought of as sinful, like Eve, as in Adam and Eve in the creation story. These claims, which are challenging the men in the church, they're coming from women, these sinful creatures. And I think this is what's really crucial to recognise, that female medieval mystics are existing in a world where all the odds are against them, where their claims to know what God wants to happen on earth challenge the men in the church and who've read scripture. These female mystics often didn't have an education in classical theology, which the churchmen did. These women aren't priests. They didn't hold positions of authority within the church as an institution. So although there isn't a huge amount of public history, which is around this topic, because it is relatively niche, And so there's not necessarily anything for me to directly challenge in that aspect. There have been some attempts by historians in recent years to brand these women as feminists because they're fighting against the framework that they live in. So, for example, there's a book which came out in 1989, I think, called The Feminist Mystic. And it's edited by Mary Giles, if you ever wanted to find it. But I think, as in the case of the Tudor queens that I discussed in the first episode, we can't take these female mystics as feminists. Because the idea of feminism, which we're referring to, is linked to the 20th century, where you have the first and second wave of feminism. These medieval mystics, they didn't know anything about that. The 20th century obviously hadn't happened yet, so they have no idea of what feminism means. 
These were women, though, who were aware of their own position, and they often doubted themselves. You have to remember that too. I mean, to make a claim that you've heard from God is pretty big, especially at a time when religion is the be-all and end-all of everyday life. For example, you've got Julian of Norwich, who is a female mystic, and there's a quote from her which says, I am a woman, ignorant, weak and frail. And that's in a text which she wrote. She's acknowledging that she's in a weak position. You can see it again in Hildegard of Bingen's work, where she talks about, this is a quote again, I am very concerned about this vision, which opens before me in a spirit as a mystery. I am wretched, and more wretched in my existence as a woman. And then she's talking to someone called Bernard of Clairvaux, who's a male theologian at the time. And she says, Gentle father, you are so secure. Answer me in your goodness. Me, your unworthy servant girl, who from childhood has never, not even for one single hour, lived in security. So again here you've got Hildegard recognising that her claim as a woman to know what God is saying, that's a really difficult thing. It's controversial because it's coming from a woman in a male-dominated world, basically. And so, in a concluding thought, I just wanted to say that when we're talking about medieval mystical women, we need to recognise kind of just how impressive their claims are. They lived in a world where they were basically up against it, and even amidst all of the challenges that they faced, these women made their claims and they got recognition for them. And I think just that in itself makes them pretty cool. Thank you very much for listening to the third episode, if you made it all the way through. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a kind of more niche topic this week, but I think it's something, as I've just been saying, that's really important to talk about. As always, if you've got any feedback or there's anything that you particularly want to hear about next, then definitely let me know on social media. The Instagram is at History Remastered Pod. I'll put it in the description of the episode as well. And if you can leave a rating on Spotify, that would be really appreciated. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Bye.